Lord, we pray that, that you would glorify your name in our lives as a church. We long to see that take place. We pray that you will continue to gain glory for your name in our lives and pray that our understanding of the word today would feed that goal. We pray in behalf of those who do not know Christ and have no understanding of why suffering takes place. I pray that you draw them to that understanding For those of us who know you and are striving to walk with you, this is a challenge to our faith. And as we come before this passage today, I pray that you deepen us, feed us on your word. As we've read earlier, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We want to feed on that now and pray that by the Spirit of God, you will teach us and aid us in this time together. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Life in this fallen world is riddled with pain. Mercifully, in His common grace, God floods our lives with all manner of goodness, from simple pleasures to heartwarming moments to victories big and small. And yet, life proves painful time and time again. We face the torments of physical pain, from a stubbed toe or headache to the torment of severe injury or the agonies of a terminal disease. We face the torments of emotional pain, the rejection of a friend or an application, the loss of a home, of health, of reputation, the death of a loved one. We also face the painful consequences of sin, our own sin, the sin of others against us personally and globally. These and a thousand other occasions of pain are a weight that every human being carries to some degree in this fallen world. But for the followers of Christ, we have an additional, if we could call it this, another bag of bricks to carry. On top of all the pain that everyone faces, we have the pain of persecution. Whether that is merely ridicule and rejection by our world, or the weightier sort so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer around the world. read this week of a small church in Bangladesh just recently. They've met peacefully for ten years in their tin hut and decided to build a larger building. This angered radical Buddhists in their area, who descended on the building, broke all of the windows in the building, and threatened to kill the men of the church. The men fled into the jungle for several weeks, hiding. The women and children huddled together in a single house for safety. But the tormentors returned. They found the women, beat them with canes, then looted the believers' empty houses, stole their crops and their livestock. This just happened earlier this year. We all live in a painful world, but when suffering for Christ is added to the weight of the pain, one of the severe temptations for believers is to say, is it worth it? 
Is this extra bag of bricks really worth carrying around? If we just back away from our testimony to Christ, maybe we'll be relieved of some of the weight of this hard, hard world. It's hard enough as it is. Well, this was the very temptation where the recipients of the book of Hebrews found themselves. Much more than our situation. It would have been much more like this church in Uganda. Let's go back to chapter 10 as we remember what the author has said to them. And just read between the, the lines here. There's a lot behind this story. But he says in chapter 10 and verse 32, 10.32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. That's, I think, certainly those in prison because of their faith in Christ, identifying with them. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, much like these Ugandan believers just faced, the plundering of your property. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls by continuing to trust in the Lord. Then comes chapter 11. In this great chapter of faith, the people who have suffered much in standing for Christ. Now there's a danger, I think, for us at this spot as a church in finding ourselves in the setting where we do, and that is to say, I kind of just watch this from afar. It doesn't really have a lot to do with us because we don't suffer that way. Nobody's plundered our property because we trust in Christ. No one's put us in prison because we trust in Christ. But two things I'd say in comment to that. First of all, we do face ridicule and rejection, and Jesus himself classified this as persecution. So I think we should understand that we are persecuted even in our situation. One of the reasons we might not understand that is because we do not live distinctly enough. But as Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice that The persecution he has in view includes just being reviled. If you're awake, you realize that you are reviled in the media every day. You are reviled in the policies that institutions set every day. And uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, because we stand for what Christ has taught, We are ridiculed in this society. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we've read earlier, some that persecution was being sawn in half. 
as gruesome and horrible as that is. For others, it's just a matter of being reviled, hated, rejected, set aside. So that's point one. We are persecuted, just in a distinct way in our setting. But secondly, all suffering, whether persecution or not, becomes a crisis of perspective. And that crisis of perspective under any type of suffering tests our faith. Faithless responses to suffering that is not persecution has likely caused more Christians to fall away from the faith than suffering that is persecution. God so often supplies grace to stand in persecution. How many Christians have fallen out of the way because they've just not handled common suffering well? God doesn't love me. I'm bitter at God for allowing this trial in my life, that type of thing. So the test of faith is the same in all sorts of suffering. So when the Bible speaks of persecution, it's talking about, in a sense, the pinnacle of suffering. But all suffering, whatever it is, we have the same crisis of faith. So yes, the author of Hebrews exhorts his readers to persevere in faith as they face physical persecution. But the foundations of this instruction apply to every form of suffering because the issue is less about what we suffer and more about how we interpret our suffering. How do we read it? How do we understand it? Faced with suffering, the eye of faith sees the unseen. It acts in light of the invisible future that God has promised. So brothers and sisters in Christ, we have the unspeakable advantage of heeding God's counsel on suffering and thus interpreting our suffering with an eye of faith set on what is unseen rather than blinded by what is seen. That's our privilege as we open the text of Scripture today. Let's bring it to life. Steve Estes is a pastor who befriended Johnny Erickson in high school. Johnny was a popular girl who broke her neck in a swimming accident, was now a quadriplegic. She'd never move anything in her body again from the neck down. A mutual friend named Diana introduced Steve to Johnny only a few weeks before their first extended conversation. Let's think of it. This is the first time they're really conversing. Ten minutes into that first talk, Johnny looks Steve in the eye and says this. So, Diana says you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with my breaking my neck? Gulp. Steve faced the spiritual counselor's version of open heart surgery. What he said could wound and kill. What he said could save. We'll return to young Steve's answer later. But how would you answer that question? It's a painful world. 
We put ourselves in the place of one who will never move a body part below the neck for life. Cut down in the middle of vitality. How do we interpret pain? I would propose that we are neither prepared to counsel nor to suffer well unless we're prepared to answer that question with biblical conviction. At issue is how we interpret suffering as believers. And helping us to that end, the passage before us, beginning at verse 3 in chapter 12, the author says, first of all, that we must view our suffering in light of Christ's suffering. We will get nowhere until we can calibrate our suffering to the suffering that Christ did in our behalf. Remembering verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, pointing back to chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The topic is clear. Look to the crucified, risen, reigning Christ. That alone will allow you to persevere in faith to the end. Now, verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Him, consider Christ, who endured from sinners this hostility that we know as the cross and His death there. Under persecution, under the pressure of living life as a despised minority, it is easy to grow weary and faint-hearted. That's what the author is attacking here. One reason is that we were created as kingdom builders. We're created to work side by side in community to subdue the earth. But since the fall, God's people are a minority community. We're serving the kingdom that the world rejects. So the world is all working together to build man's kingdom, and we've got a different project going on. In fact, our project conflicts with theirs. So at best, we face ridicule. At best, we face rejection whenever we encounter the world's beliefs or its efforts that do not bring glory to God. When we face that assault, we, resist, we must resist weariness and faint-heartedness. And how do we do it? Verse 3, by considering Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. In other words, we must look to the example of our Savior who endured the worst that this vile world could throw at Him. We can look at a lot of other people. We can look to ourselves and our own strength. We must look to Christ who endured the ultimate suffering. The ultimate persecution. As the readers do this, the author reminds them by way of comparison, verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In your struggle against sin is not in your struggle against your personal sin, but in context, it's saying in your struggle against sinners, against those who are attacking the truth, who are attacking your stand, you have not yet struggled to the point of blood. 
which I think is probably euphemism for death. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood on the cross, reviled and tortured and executed by sinners. You have not died yet. Therefore, your suffering falls short of Christ's suffering. It's a good thing to think through. He's not blaming them. He's not shaming them. He's saying, listen, we must remain loyal to Christ to the end of our lives as Jesus remained loyal to the Father to the end of His life. We look to Jesus. He is our example in this. So if physical persecution does come to us as a church, which is very conceivable, We don't know how we will stand against it. We've not faced that level of persecution in our lives. What we can say is we will stand if we look to Christ. And we will not stand if we look somewhere else. Only a sustained vision of Christ who defeated death will sustain us. But if we have that, we have everything that we need, come what may. It's not confidence in us. It's confidence in Christ and the faith that He's given us. But the problem comes when we begin to compare the weight of suffering of other believers. Certainly the problem comes when we begin to compare the weight of our suffering with unbelievers, with with those about us who do not know the Lord. They needed to compare their sufferings with Jesus. So we can say this, any suffering that you ever face in this life is a form of suffering that Christ faced in fuller measure. We know that, but I think we can also add to that if we would expand verse 4 just a bit. We can also say that anything that I suffer, there are Christians in the history of this world that have suffered more and have been victorious. You see where where the interpretation comes in. The focus comes in. If the focus comes in on poor me and self-pity and why do these people not suffer as much as I do, I'm getting a raw deal. We're in big trouble because we're depending on ourselves as we compare ourselves among ourselves. Compare to Christ and it'll keep your feet on the ground. This is one small reason for our just completed series on the life of William Nib. To look to the suffering and the sacrifice of those who have gone further is sanctifying, helpful, and edifying. Now, the point is not you can do this. Trust yourself, but keep looking to Jesus, trusting Him. So we don't give in to self-pity. We don't look outward. We don't give in to bitterness and depression. We look upward. Keep running, believers, says the Holy Spirit. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted by looking too closely at your suffering. Fix your eyes on Jesus at the end of the race. Run, fight, and win the prize. That's His counsel. So we must view our suffering in light of Christ's suffering. The second line of instruction, we'll spend more time here, is that we must view our suffering as God's fatherly training. We must view our suffering as God our Father is training and disciplining and nurturing us. This is wonderful truth. It's kind of hard to swallow sometimes, but it's beautiful truth. Verse 5, And have you forgotten 
the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Before the author quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, notice just first of all there in verse 5 that he views this Old Testament text as addressed directly to New Covenant believers. The exhortation to young boys at the court of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 is a direct word of counsel from God to the New Testament believer. Not every passage of Scripture applies to us equally. Not all applies, some don't apply at all. But this is remarkable. God has spoken to you through Proverbs chapter 3, 11, and 12. And what's the problem? You have forgotten. You're not thinking about this. What's vital then is perspective. Suffering is divine discipline. It is God's tool to nurture faith. You've lost that perspective. The Scriptures teach you this in Proverbs 3. And one of the dangers, as we see here in the proverb, verse 5, is that we might regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. To regard it lightly, I think, means to fail to see the significance of suffering, perhaps most often by concentrating on the suffering alone. We will dismiss the fatherly hand of God if we get all taken up with what we're suffering. And that becomes the whole focus. We dismiss His work. Don't do that, He says. When God gets your attention by leading you through trial, it is important that you not grow weary in the training. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastises the Son whom He receives. I'm not going to land on this long. In fact, in our home groups, we'll perhaps work through this question a bit further. This is not saying that every everything that we suffer is correction for known sin in our life. It is definitely not saying that. But it is saying that all suffering in our life is corrective. Does that make sense? That God's, God's not punishing us for specific sin every time that we suffer something wrong. But it is true that He is always training us, that He is always maturing us. Always correction for sin. He corrects sins in our heart that we can't see. There is training to address immaturities that we cannot fix on our own. There is discipline to preserve us from sins that we would commit if we were left unchecked and a litany of other possibilities. We don't always know what precisely God is up to or why precisely this course of suffering, but what we must do is trust that suffering is His hand of discipline. That's a very unique interpretation of suffering in our world. The very circumstances we so naturally interpret as evidence of God's indifference, we must learn to perceive as evidence of God's loving care and attention. That's just the opposite of how we naturally think. Why would God do this to me? 
Why would he allow this to happen? Where is he? Has he abandoned me? These are natural responses to suffering. He's saying, no, this is the interpretation. What you're going through is an evidence that God is training you because he loves you, verse 6. What they could see so very clearly was the battle against sinners. What they had to learn to see with the eye of faith was that God was using that opposition to deepen their faith. They had to embrace that truth and not let go of it, and so must we. The author now takes a deep dive into that relationship with our Heavenly Father as he lovingly employs discipline for our good and he he uses the parental analogy to help us understand it as as we work through verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I think one of the reasons he's using sons here is because of the legal status of sons in that setting, in that culture. It applies to women equally, of course. But notice here in verses 7 and 8 that suffering indicates that you are God's child. In that day, children of illegitimate birth were seldom adopted by the biological father, and thus he would assume no responsibility to train them. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it, by our standards? Our standards, where we just kill the child in the womb. as If we're not just as godless, we should remember abortion is no less barbaric, and that child neglect is no less rampant in our day than in theirs. But that said, it does strike us as harsh not the child's fault, and yet they suffer this indignity. The child of, the illegitimate, of illegitimate birth, those who were born through adultery or born to a concubine or to a harlot, they were not disciplined because the father did not take that responsibility. In contrast, verse 7, the author asks a question for which there was in his mind only one answer. For what? Son is there whom his father does not discipline. I mean, there is none. He didn't live in our day, did he? Uh, We have, I mean, we could present a host of fathers from our culture that don't discipline their children. But in the ancient world, such a relationship was unimaginable. Our culture is intoxicated with the philosophy of individualism and worships the idol of self-expression. When you worship the idol of self-expression, then it's your job as a parent to get out of your child's way. Let them express themselves however they choose, in any way that they choose. Seek every way to just get out of the way and let them run free. The ancient world knew nothing of that ridiculous philosophy that overwhelms our culture. They viewed it as, you have a child... Your job for our community is for you to make sure that child is trained and doesn't cause us trouble. So a father who did not discipline his son was harshly judged as shirking his duty to the community, let alone to his son. What father doesn't discipline his son? In this context, it makes perfect sense. Or to say it this way, God does not discipline Satan's children. 
I mean, he does in the sense that he turns them over to the natural consequences of their sinful choices, and God can certainly choose to discipline and to even take out a child of Satan. But God's children are spared so many hard consequences of sin. And so the Lord ordains suffering of other kinds in order to train His children. The analogy is pressed a little further there in verse 9. He says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I think Father of spirits just means our spiritual father. So earthly fathers, spiritual fathers. We, we've, we've had fathers who disciplined us and we, we respected them for it. Think again in the ancient context. You discipline your child, you're evidencing that you love him, you love her. That's how a father displayed that love. He's saying, do you think your heavenly father is any less loving? Verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In the ideal way of looking at things, our earthly fathers did the best they knew to train us. They made mistakes. They weren't always fair. They missed opportunities. They did not always do it the right way, with the right spirit, or with the right goal in view. But they loved us enough to try. I know I don't speak to everyone or for everyone here, but for many, generally speaking, They tried. They did the best that they knew. But by contrast, our spiritual father always and only disciplines us for our absolute good. This we can know. And notice the outcome of it. Verse 9, it is that we would live, that we would have abundant life. Verse 10, it is for our good and it is for our holiness. He disciplines you, believer, that you might share in his holiness. What a promise. So are you suffering today as a follower of Christ? What suffering are you facing? God is teaching you how to interpret that suffering. What is actually going on in the midst of that physical pain, what is actually going on in that loss that turns your stomach into knots and takes away even sometimes, honestly, your will to live, What is going on in that sorrow, that damage that your sin has caused, or the sin committed against you, that disappointment, that ridicule from a lost world? God is using that to mold you such that you reflect His holiness, His distinctive purity. And here's where even the moderate level of rejection and ridicule that we face every day is so vital to the development of our faith. Don't rage in anger against the godless, foolish ideas and practices of this world. Sometimes we should. But generally speaking, we should recognize this is the Father's discipline of us to live in such a world. 
to suffer the consequences of the folly of man on a wide scale. That is the unseen project the eye of faith chooses to see and embrace. He is disciplining us through the trials that we face. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. God is no fool. He's not telling us to buck up and realize that your pain is not painful. It is painful. But we can say this with great assurance, it's also fruitful. How I've witnessed that in my own life. As a child, I had no love for my parents' correction and discipline. I chafed against it. I didn't like it. Who does? It was not pleasant. And I made it a lot less pleasant than I could have. How do I look back at my parents' correction and discipline? I look back, say thank you, Mom and Dad. a gift to have a parent in your life who says don't do this is a gift to have a parent in your life that says you must do this is a gift it is somebody there to say that the way that you are is bent toward destruction and I'm going to stand in your way and guide you it's not pleasant we don't like it but it's a gift. And I know, as so many of us do today, that I am who I am in part because I had a parents that said, that corrected me, that disciplined me. They love me enough to do so. So he knows this. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When we endure suffering in faith as God's children, we produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. He produces that in our lives. And this is a pervasive theme in the New Testament. We could look at this in so many ways. We know these texts well, but let's review them again, understanding this pervasive theme from varying authors of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing, here's the interpretation, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He's given to us. Notice the connection of we rejoice in sufferings because of that we know what they produce on the love of God. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When you meet trials, 
of various kinds. The Apostle Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I, I like to do some reading on the far left. I'm not talking just politically here, but primarily morally. And it's really easy to get angered, excited. I want to keep training my mind to say, I'm blessed. This ridicule of the teaching of Christ, this hatred for his people, this hatred for the agenda of the kingdom of God. When I read those bitter, harsh, attacking words, I'm being blessed by God. I'm reminded I'm on his side. In a fallen world that's in rebellion against him, it's a blessing. Don't be surprised when you read the ridicule in the media. When at work or the neighborhood or school or your family, People despise Jesus. Remember, he's using this to build us up in the faith. Now having said this, unbeliever, those of you who do not know Christ as Savior, there's a danger here in that you might be tempted to conclude from this discussion that the first thing that you need to do, the first step to draw close to God is to get in line, bow your head, and submit to the suffering. All right, if i got to do it, I'll get in line and take the heat. You'll line up and pay your dues. Let God punish you for your sin and you'll be good to go. No. No, no, no. The bad news is that such an attempt would only reflect your trust in yourself and reveal that you do not grasp the gravity of your sinful rebellion against God. That's all it would do. The good news is you do not need to sign up for suffering. Not in one sense of the word. I mean, you see what's coming. It's all here on the page before you. But rather, you must realize that Jesus suffered for you. That he paid the cost of sinners' crimes by his death and his suffering. That's what we're talking about here in verse 3, verses 1 through 3. The suffering in view in this passage, then, is the suffering that trains God's children. But before you are trained as God's child, you have to be born into the family. And that is not through natural birth, but through supernatural birth. You need to be born again. That's where you line up. Not in the corrective line, but in the new birth line. Once you are in his family, by saving faith in the message of Jesus crucified in your place to pay the punishment due your sin, then you start to grow in righteousness. And then you can entirely reinterpret suffering because you stand on Jesus' sacrifice. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we must learn to view our suffering as a sign of God's love, as a means to holiness. That's what it is. 
And as we learn to interpret suffering that way, we must hold a firm conviction of the sovereignty of God, a God who makes no mistakes and ordains all that comes to pass. And even when the pain is the result of our own foolishness and sin, we rest at peace that He is at work in that as well. So this leads us back to Steve. As he fields a question from the newly wheelchair-bound Johnny. They're just teenagers. So Diana says you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with my breaking my neck? Steve describes the scene. You can just imagine. He says, I'm 16-year-old nobody. I'm a paper boy. Sitting across from perhaps the most popular girl of her huge high school class just two years earlier, the crowd she ran with I saw only across the gymnasium. Now look at her. I'll be walking out that screen door in about 30 minutes. She'll stay sitting in that chair till the Grim Reaper comes. And she wants to know if I think God put her there. Who am I to open my mouth? I know what the Bible says about her question, but nothing worse than a D in algebra or puppy love gone sour has ever happened to me. But I think, wow, this is a great thought for a teen. (laughs) But I think, If the Bible can't work in this girl's life, it never was for real. I clear my throat and I jump off that cliff. That's what he said. God put you in that chair, Johnny. I don't know why. But if you'll trust Him instead of fighting Him, You'll find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck because He loves you. He writes, oh, that sounded trite to me. But then writing years later, he adds this amazing grace. Oh, that sounded trite to me, but apparently not to her. Indeed, Johnny has come to rejoice that God has assigned her to the hard, hard road of living the majority of her life in a wheelchair from which she has touched countless numbers of people for the gospel. And this discussion of her journey, this conversation that I'm sharing with you again here today, It's found in a book that's not entitled When God Doesn't Care. It's found in a book that's ideally titled When God Weeps. Title that makes sense to those who understand the gospel. And now that makes sense to this woman. But before we leave off too soon... We must turn from the right interpretation of suffering and just give a moment or two to consider the right response to that answer. 
And here I turn to the book, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, who speaks words we think, but don't usually want to say out loud. I don't have them here. I have them in my notes. He says this, We may wish indeed that we were of so little account to God that He left us alone to follow our natural impulses, that He would give over trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But once again, we're asking not for more love, but for less. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. He goes on to say later these memorable words. And remember this, Christian. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is His megaphone to arouse a deaf world. It is an evidence of our tepid faith that we like it most when God whispers. We love ease. We love when things go our way, and there's nothing innately wrong with that. But what we must love above all is God. And what we must want above all is the holiness of life that He seeks to produce in His people, in part through our trials. In that vein, let us learn then to interpret our suffering, not as evidence that God has forgotten us or is against us, not a reason to grow bitter against Him, but rather as evidence that He loves us and is building our faith. Know this, suffering saint. If you are His child, God will never harm you. Ever. The harm has come on Christ. So any trial, any difficulty that He brings into our life is not to destroy us. It is to deepen us. His discipline is not easy, but it is never anything other than love, always. And remember as well that the day of discipline will end. As the Apostle Paul put it, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. We are thankful, Lord, that you have given to us a brief vision into what is unseen. And we pray, Father, that you would deepen us in our understanding of trial and difficulty Forgive us of our unfaithfulness, our infidelity to you, our questioning spirit, the bitterness of our hearts, the accusations that you have abandoned us. Lord, forgive us for those who have not come to trust in and rest in the sacrifice of Christ. Will you be merciful and draw them to that saving faith today? We praise you for this revelation. Help us to live it out for the glory of your name and for the holiness of your people. Through Christ we pray. Amen.